Well, if you have your Bibles with you once again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1049. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to Matthew chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 20. I'll speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning. It shall not be so among you. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. <clears throat> and this is what the Word of God says. <clears throat> then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Constance Hale, in her book, Sin and Syntax, How to Craft Wickedly Effective Prose, includes the following college application essay for New York University by prospective student Hugh Gallagher. Question 3A of the application states... In order for the admissions staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant, better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped to define you as a person? In response to that question, Gallagher wrote the following. I am a dynamic figure often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I have been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I am an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I am the subject of numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. I don't perspire. Children, trust me. 
I can hurl tennis rackets at small, small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. <laughs> it's your fault. You got me tickled. Uh, I practiced and practiced, not getting tickled. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small breakery. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid. I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet, I have performed open heart surgery, and I have spoken with Elvis, but I have not yet gone to college. <laughs> it's a very entertaining essay that clearly captures the heart of the culture in which you and I are immersed. The culture of self. The culture of promoting ourselves. The culture of having a five-minute elevator speech to proclaim yourself and all of your goodness. And friends, we dwell in the land of the promotion of self. Self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-reliance, and self-glory. Tragically, this cult of selfism has found its way into evangelical Christianity. Books, seminars, conferences, and organizations that promote self under the guise of personal spiritual development abound. The movement has found little resistance in the church from countless sources, claims are heard that God's great design for his people is health, its prosperity, its success, its happiness, and its self-fulfillment. And the Bible's teaching of suffering and loss and cross-bearing for Christ's sake are either ignored altogether or foolishly explained away. A weak gospel, easy believism, and non-sacrificial Christian living are the reflections and the evidence of this new culture and doctrine of self. But this emphasis on self is not only prevalent in our day, it was also widespread in Jesus' day among his disciples. For weeks we have been seeing how Jesus had been preparing his followers for the events that would take place surrounding his death once they arrived in Jerusalem. But all of these truths were all but lost on the disciples. The disciples were consumed with self-promotion and self-glory, and their theology of self blinded them to the realities of Christ and his sacrifice. All these men could think about was what they would gain by following Christ. And nowhere is this more evident than in the passage before us. In his encounter with the mother of the sons of Zebedee, te Jesus teaches his disciples and all who would follow him that the culture of self 
has no place in his kingdom. In fact, he says emphatically, it shall not be so among you. Now notice with me in verses 20 and 21, the request. The Bible says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now remember, this account comes on the heels of Jesus' prediction that when he arrives in Jerusalem, he will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes, that he will be condemned to death, that he will be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and to be crucified, and that he will be raised on the third day. And neither Matthew nor Mark record that any of the disciples responded to Jesus' words about his imminent suffering and death. They were so preoccupied with their own understanding of Christ's work and the pursuit of their own interest that they overlooked Jesus' prophetic words about what was about to take place. And in contrast to Jesus' announcement of suffering and death in verses 17 to 19, Matthew records the request of the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, the mother of the sons of Zebedee was a regular member of the group of disciples who accompanied Jesus. The Bible says that she was among the women who stayed at the cross as Jesus was being crucified. And she was also among the first group who witnessed the empty tomb. The scriptures teach us that she was most likely Salome, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, making her Jesus's aunt and her sons, James and John, Jesus's cousins. Now, from the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark, it is apparent that the mother was speaking at the request of her two sons. In fact, when you read Mark's account, Mark makes no mention of the mother at all. In his account on this scene, Mark says that James and John are the ones that raised the question to Jesus. And in Mark 10.35, Mark records that they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, there's no contradiction between Matthew's account and Mark's account. As one commentator stated, it is possible either that the three of them asked together or perhaps even more likely that they had discussed it among themselves beforehand and each posed the question to Jesus privately. So with a well-crafted plan, the three of them approached Jesus and intending to capitalize on their family relationship, the mother spoke first and then James and John spoke for themselves. And Matthew says here in this passage that as a sign of respect, the mother of the sons of Zebedee knelt down before Jesus and asked him for something. And you'll notice in verse 21 that Jesus responds to her and he asks her what she wants. And she responds by saying, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now to be clear, to sit at the right hand and to sit at the left is to occupy the second and third most important positions of rulership. 
And so James and John were like the scribes and the Pharisees who loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue. They longed for prestige and preeminence and to be exalted over the other apostles. And as John says in 3 John 9, they were like Diotrephes. They were self-seeking and they loved to be first. And likewise, the mother clearly had ambitions for her sons. And she planned to see them occupying important positions in the kingdom of heaven. But friends, you need to understand clearly what's happening in this text. Their request of Jesus was bold. But it was also brash. In effect, listen to what they were claiming. They were claiming out of all of the great people of God who had come before them and who had ever lived, they alone deserved the two highest positions of authority in the kingdom next to Jesus. Greater than David, greater than Moses, greater than all of the Old Testament saints, James and John deserve this more than the others. And this request was likely in response to Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 28, when he promised that when he sits on his glorious throne, his disciples would sit on 12 thrones with him, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so James and John are now jockeying for position to get the second and the third most choice thrones when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And this desire for prominence and preeminence was always an issue among the disciples. The Bible says it continued to be an issue right up to the account of the Last Supper just before Jesus went to the cross. And so why? Why in this request would they act like this? Well, one commentator is very helpful in helping us understand how James and John got to this point, and listen carefully, how you and I act the same way. This is what he writes. Would not the brothers occupying seats closest to Jesus show unmistakably that he favored them above the other ten? And would not that be inexpressibly satisfying to their prideful egos? Can we not understand the brothers' ambition? Were they not among the first persons called into discipleship? Were they not chosen from a host of disciples to be numbered among the twelve? Had not Jesus already selected them to be two of his most intimate companions? And the answer to all of that is yes. Yes, their egos, their pride... They loved it. They thirsted for it. They couldn't get enough of it. And he writes, And would not such favors cause us to be proud and crave more of the same? And the answer to that, friends, is yes. Yes. Somewhere inside of all of us, we crave this. We crave prominence. We crave preeminence. We want to be well-known. We want the accolades. Oh, we would say in a false sense of humility before others, no, I don't care about any of that, but deep down inside of us, something resides that says, yes, yes, I too want the second and third position. J.C. Ryle in his expository thoughts on Matthew is helpful at this point. He says, truly the flesh lesteth 
against the spirit in all God's children. As Luther well remarks, the flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is ever crucified. That's it. You know as well as I do, friends, you'd rather be glorified than crucified. You'd rather have prominence than obscurity. We, I submit to you today, are just like these disciples. We not only see the request, we see in verses 22 to 24 the reaction. Matthew writes, And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now from the dialogue in these verses, it is apparent that the request of James and John and their mother was born out of ignorance. Jesus says so. He says to them clearly, you do not know what you're even asking. Meaning they didn't understand the implications of their demand. And in verse 22, bypassing the mother, Jesus answered the two brothers directly. And he said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? What's he talking about there? Well, the phrase to drink meant to drink the full measure. It meant to leave nothing behind. It was a common expression that meant to stay with something to the end, to endure the limits, whatever the cost. So to endure to the end, to drink all of it. What was he to drink? The cup. What is meant by the cup? Well, this phrase is used in the Old Testament to signify the outpouring of the wrath of God for sin. And it's often used in the Bible as a metaphor for suffering. Jesus would declare in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 in the upper room with his disciples that this cup, as he held it up to them, is the new covenant in my blood, signifying his suffering, which is poured out for you. And so the cup that Jesus was about to drink to the full was the cup of suffering and death that he had prophesied in verses 17 to 19. But Jesus' cup was more than just the physical agony of the cross. And his cup was more than the emotional pain of being forsaken by his friends. The height of Jesus' cup was the spiritual pain of having the sins of the world placed upon him on the cross. It was a pain. It was a suffering. It was an anguish that was so great that Jesus repeatedly asked the Father in Matthew 26 that if it was possible that this cup would pass from him, nevertheless, he surrendered his will to the Father. And so look carefully at this, friends. By asking for the positions of the greatest authority in the kingdom, position number two and position number three, James and John, Jesus says, were actually asking for the most bitter cup of suffering that anyone could ever experience in their lives. It's as if Jesus was saying to James and John, don't you realize by now that the way to eternal glory is not through worldly success and honor, 
but it's through suffering. Haven't you heard what I've been teaching you about the persecuted being blessed and about how you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me? Do you really think you can drink this kind of cup, this kind of anguish, this kind of suffering, this kind of hardship? And friends, it's at this point that we need to remember this truth and apply it to the reality of the world in which you and I are living. We, as God's followers, are not promised a life of ease. The Bible refers to us as pilgrims and sojourners passing through, meaning that this world is not our final destination. This world is not our home. And too often we live as if this world is our final destination and it is our final home. And when we do that, we stand up like James and John in the face of this bitter cup that Jesus was saying and say, we too, we too can drink the cup. But our satisfaction and our ease and our comfort level with living in this world deceives us. It deceives us about whether we are really ready and able to drink the cup of sacrifice and suffering that may come to us one day as followers of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember through this conversation and this encounter that hardship is coming, that persecution is not far around the corner, that suffering and affliction may indeed come to your doorstep for the sake of Jesus Christ and for His gospel and for the cause of His kingdom. Now remind all of us this morning that the suffering that leads to glory is the suffering that is willingly endured in remaining faithful to the Lord. It is being reviled. It is being persecuted. It is having all kinds of evil things said about you falsely because of Jesus. This is the cup that we must be willing to drink. And it's not taking the easy way out of our relationship and service to Christ and His kingdom. It is being willing to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. For the better country that awaits us. Not this land that we are passing for, through. And that was for free. Now notice at the end of verse 22, with great confidence and clearly without contemplating Jesus' question, look at how the brothers respond. We're able. Can't, can't you just see it? Fellas, did you just hear what I said in verse 17 to 19? You really think you can drink the cup that's coming my way? Oh yeah, we're good, Jesus. We're good. Bring it on right now. We are ready. We are all in. And they were just like Peter, promising never to forsake Christ. And James and John thought they could endure anything. And just as Peter denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed, the two brothers, along with the rest of the disciples, fled when they arrested Jesus. And they're going to drink the cup? They're going to drink that? Notice in verse 23 that Jesus responds to their answer. And I think he responds with tenderness and compassion here. And he assures James and John. And look at how he assures them. You will drink this cup. And in the end, they, like the Apostle Paul, would share in the sufferings of Christ. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2 that James was the first apostle that was martyred. 
And the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 that John ended his life as a condemned exile on the island of Patmos. And so they did indeed drink the cup of suffering for the sake of Christ. Now notice after his assurance that they will indeed suffer, Jesus reminds them and us that we all must submit to the will of God the Father And he says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In other words, there is no favoritism in the kingdom of heaven. Personal ambition does not factor into God's sovereign plan and purpose for our lives. He has a will, a plan, and a purpose for all of us, and nothing will thwart that plan Then in verse 24, Matthew records that when the other disciples heard the request of James and John, look at what the text says. They were indignant at the two brothers. Greek translation, they were ticked off. They were upset. Why were they upset? Oh, listen, when you study the text, here's why they were upset. James and John beat them to the question. They had the same question and desire that James and John had. And that's why the other ten were so upset with James and John. How dare they get ahead of them in seeking seat number two and seeking seat number three? You say, well, how do you know that from the text? Well, when you read Luke chapter 22 and Luke's account of all of the disciples at the Last Supper, He says there arose a dispute among all of them as to which one of the twelve was to be regarded as the greatest. They all wanted these seats. And we're just like them. So we not only see the request and the reaction in verses 25 to 27, we see the response. And this is what Matthew says. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now notice what Jesus does in verse 25. He responds to the disciples' indignation and anger towards James and John by calling all 12 of them to himself. He brings all of the disciples around him. And Jesus uses the unbelieving Gentile world to explain to his disciples and to explain to us where true greatness in his kingdom is found. Now you have to look at the text carefully in what he is doing here in these three verses. Virtually every government of Jesus' day was a tyrannical dictatorship under all of whom the Jews suffered immensely. And so Jesus reminds them in verses 25 and 26 that these oppressive Gentile rulers lorded over their subjects. It literally means that they rule down over the people under their leadership. And he says, and their great ones exercise heavy-handed authority. They literally play the tyrant over the people that they're leading. And so he's speaking of a dictatorial, tyrannical leadership. And when he uses the phrase great ones, it carries the idea of distinguished, eminent, illustrious, and noble. 
It represents those who have high personal appeal and have achieved high stature in the eyes of the world and who seek to control others by their personal influence. Now, don't miss what Jesus is doing in this text. It is so powerful and so relevant for today. He paints a picture of leadership in the unbelieving world where dictators dominate through their power and through their position. And we see that all of the time. And where charismatic leaders wield the powers of popularity and personality and prestige to manipulate those they are leading. A dictatorial leadership and a charismatic leadership. That's how the unbelieving world operates. And in the unbelieving world, it is assumed that power and prominence and authority define greatness. That's why, G that's why Peter, listen, he's among the twelve as Jesus is teaching this truth. That's why Peter will say to every pastor, every elder in 1 Peter 5, do not domineer over those in your care. Where did he learn that lesson? Right here. And friends, this domineering, tyrannical leadership, this charismatic personality, celebrity-driven leadership has infiltrated the church. It's everywhere in the church. Celebrity pastors, celebrity leaders, as if they are going to be like James and John and take chair number two and chair number three in his kingdom. And I would submit to you this morning that some of the greatest sermons that have ever been preached, you've never heard. You can't find them on YouTube. Because there's no platform for them. We must listen to Jesus' words here. It's not about self-promotion. It is not about prominence. It's not about being a celebrity in His kingdom. Listen, it is about being faithful to what you've been given. That's the standard. And notice what Jesus does in verse 26. He says... This shall not be so among you. What shall not be so? Domineering, tyrannical leadership. Charismatic, personality-driven leadership. It shall not be so among any of you. The kingdom of heaven is not governed by self-serving, self-promoting, self-glorifying. It is different than that. And then notice what he does in verses 26 and 27. His words in these verses form a parallel structure. And the language that he uses, now you have to read it carefully or you'll miss it. The language that he uses in verses 26 and 27 speaks of relationships among believers. Relationships among the church. And so in verse 26, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that whoever wants to be great in his kingdom must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first in his kingdom must be a slave. Now, this language should sound familiar to you if you've been following along in Matthew. What's he been talking about for weeks? The first and the last. The first and the last. And what's he saying here? Whoever would be great. Whoever would be first. You have to be a servant and you have to be a slave. Now, look carefully at the language in deeper detail. 
The word whoever leaves the door open to true greatness in Jesus's eyes for anyone who's willing to follow what he says to do. That means anyone in his kingdom can be great. Whoever, whoever's willing to listen to him and do what he says can be seen as great in his kingdom. What do they have to do? Well, notice, first of all, they have to be a servant if they want to be great. It's literally where we get our word diakonos or deacon. And it literally means to wait tables, manual, menial labor. And it is not used as a term of dishonor by Jesus. Jesus is actually taking it and elevating it. And he's saying that you want to be great. You want to be a follower of me who is known as being great. Wait tables. Serve. I I would frame it this way. I was going to leave it out of the sermon. It just popped in my head. So I'm going to say it. Do you have a theology of the towel? Do you have a theology of the bathroom? What do you mean by that? Well, Jesus had a theology of the towel. Before he was betrayed, he knelt down and he washed all of his disciples' feet. He served them. He served them a theology of the towel. What do you mean by a bathroom theology? Men, when's the last time you cleaned the bathroom in your house? When's the last time you took the most menial task that you could think of and have done it to serve others? That's the picture. That's the point. You want to be great? You want to be great? Serve. Wait tables. Forget about yourself. Notice the other word he uses. You want to be first? Be a slave. It's the word doulos in the Greek. It's how Paul described himself as being a bond slave of Jesus Christ, meaning that he didn't belong to himself. He belonged to Jesus, and he did whatever Jesus wanted him to do. And that's what Jesus is saying. You want to be first in my kingdom? You bond yourself up to me. You be my slave. You do what I tell you to do. You go where I tell you to go. You do that. You act as a slave in my care, and you will be first. You will be great. The ambition of James and John and their mother and the other disciples was one of self-serving, self-promotion, and self-glorying. And the ambition that Jesus describes is humble, selfless service and sacrifice to God. Don't miss it, friends. The great and the first in Jesus' kingdom are those who are willing to be servants and those who are willing to be slaves in voluntary, humble sacrifice for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his gospel. As one commentator describes it, the cost of true greatness is humble, selfless, sacrificial service. The Christian who desires to be great and first in the kingdom is the one who is willing to serve in the hard place, the one who's willing to serve in the uncomfortable place, the one who's willing to serve in the lonely place, the one who's willing to serve in the demanding place, the one who's willing to serve in the place where he is not appreciated, where he may even be persecuted. Knowing that time is short and eternity is long, he's willing to spend and be spent. He's willing to work for excellence without becoming proud, to withstand criticism without becoming bitter, to be misjudged without becoming defensive, and to withstand suffering without succumbing to self-pity. In essence, he's willing to forget about himself. Well, we not only see the request and the reaction and the response, 
finally, in verse 28, we see the ransom. Matthew records that Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me tell you what Jesus does in verse 28. He illustrates the principles that he's just taught his disciples in verses 25, 26, and 27 with the model of his life. In essence, he's saying to them, do you want to know what it looks like to be a servant and what it looks like to be a slave? Look to me. Look to my life. And you will see what it looks like. Now, verse 28 is filled with some of the richest doctrinal truth that you'll ever find in your Bible. And I was tempted just to preach the sermon on the one verse. But I didn't do that, obviously. And so I'm going to give you a cursory view of the verse. How is Jesus the example of servanthood? Well, he tells us in verse 28 that he came to suffer. He used the title for himself, the Son of Man. And it emphasizes his identification with us in his incarnation and in leaving the glory and the splendor of heaven and coming to earth and to dwell among us. That he was able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and sufferings because he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted and yet he was without sin. And so he came to suffer. He came to live a life that you and I could never live. And in that regard, he serves as an example of true servanthood. He also tells us in verse 28 that he came to serve. He said that he did not come to be served, but he came to serve. He did not come to be helped by us. Jesus came to help us. He did not come to be waited on by waited on by us he came to wait on us the one who deserved to be served is the one who came to serve us and he came jesus says in verse 28 to save us that's what it means when he speaks of giving his life as a ransom for many and you will have noticed in the hymns that we sung today we sang about the ransom that Jesus paid. This word ransom literally means the price of release, and it is used to describe the money that is paid to release slaves. And Jesus uses it in this context to teach us that all of us are born slaves of sin, slaves of our flesh, slaves of the devil, and slaves of this world. But Jesus says in this verse, he came to suffer and he came to serve and he came to save. He came to pay the ransom price for our bondage of sin in slavery to sin. He came to pay that price to set us free. He came to save us. And how we know this is true? He gave his life on the cross. And Peter, the one who was standing in this group as Jesus was illustrating his very life, would later say in his epistle to persecuted believers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter got it. He understood that Jesus was the ransom price for our salvation. But there's something even more glorious than that in this verse. Jesus came. 
to be our substitute. Jesus came and gave his life in the place of those he would save. All of us stand under the weight of our sin and the guilt and shame that comes with our sin. And all of us stand under the wrath of God, fully deserving death for our sins, as the Bible says. But Jesus says that he came as our substitute. He came to take our place. He came to take our sin. He came to take our guilt. He came to take our shame. He came to take our death upon himself on the cross. And Jesus died so that you could live in and through him. You say, well, I, I don't see that anywhere in the text. Where are you getting this from? Oh, there's one little word in verse 28 that is the biggest word in the verse. And it's the word for. He came to be the ransom for our sins. It literally means in the place of, in exchange of. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. Don't miss this, friends. Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross, but you should be going to the cross. You should be nailed to that tree. The punishment and wrath of God for your sin, your guilt, your shame, your disobedience, all of that should be placed on you, and you should die, and you should be put in the grave. But because I love you so much and because I came to suffer among you and I came to serve you and I came to save you, I came to pay that price, I'm going to exchange my life for your life. So you're not going to have to take up your cross and march up to Golgotha. I'm going to take it up and I'm going to march and I'm going to be nailed to it and I'm going to be dropped in the ground and I'm going to feel the wrath of God for your sin and I'm going to die in your place and I'm going to be buried in your place and I'm going to raise from the grave and defeat all of that so that when you die, you can be united with me and live forever in eternity. It's an exchange. He's your substitute. That's why Jesus came. That's what he did. He was your substitute to satisfy the wrath of God that is on your life for sin. And notice what he said in verse 28. He's a ransom for many. It means that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for everyone. But it's only efficient for the many who would believe in him, turn from their sins, receive him as their savior, and live for him. That's the many. You say, well, how do I know I'm among the many? It's really quite simple. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe you're under the wrath of God for your sin? Do you believe that the punishment for sin is death and that you should be forever separated from God in a literal place called hell? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God sent his son who lived in your place and lived a perfect life that you could never live and died a death that you deserve to die and took the wrath of God upon himself for your sin and that he was buried for you, buried in your place, and that he rose from the grave for you and that you, if you would believe in him and confess your sin and turn away from it, that he would save you? Do you believe that? Have you done that? Then you're among the many. And if you haven't done it, you're not. It's that simple. It's that simple. If you have, you are. If you haven't, you're not. He's your ransom. 
Well, in his encounter with the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Jesus teaches his disciples and all who would follow him that the culture of self has no place in his kingdom. He says, it shall not be so among you. And it's clear through the gospel writers that the disciples still did not get it. But when we come to the book of Acts and we come to the epistles, after Jesus' resurrection, do you know what we find? They got it. They understood. And do you know what John wrote in 1 John 2, 6? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. What way was that, John? The cup of suffering. He says in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. No longer seeking position two and position three. Now seeking self-sacrifice for the good of others. That's how I know they got it. And you say, well, pastor, what do we do with all of this? Well, if you're a believer, may I ask you today, do you have a heart full of gratitude and devotion to Christ for what he's done for you? Is your heart full of gratitude and devotion to Christ for what he's done for you? Do you see what Jesus saved you from fresh and new? friends. And do you see that he not only saved you from a life of sin, Jesus saved you for a life of service. Jesus came as a servant and he gave his life. And he's teaching us that when he saves us, we should be servants and we should give our lives in service to him and to others. And so if you're a believer this morning, I ask you, are you ready to follow the example of your Savior and put others before yourself? Number two. What's striking about this text, and I didn't mention it in the main body of the sermon, is that Jesus never condemned the ambition of the disciples. He condemned their method of obtaining it. So do you know what that tells me? It tells me we should pray big. We should ask God to use us for his kingdom. And we should ask God to use us for his glory. And we should not ask God to use us for our kingdom and for our glory. For his kingdom and for his glory. And we should remember that it is not the celebrities but the servants who will have first place in God's kingdom. So pray big. Ask him to use you. I ask him every Sunday to use me. Pray big. Pray bold. Stay humble. Number three. For those who are here today discouraged in their walk in service to the Lord. For those who see the seemingly unfaithful prospering while you are struggling. Would you remember that God, only God knows the motives of the person's heart? And only God sees everything? And that as Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. And listen to what he says at the end of the verse. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The commendation doesn't come now. It comes then. Faithfulness now, commendation later. And God doesn't judge the way the world does. 
the seemingly unfaithful can prosper in a worldly degree. That's why you live for the final commendation, not the present one. So take heart, dear friend. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. In the end, when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you will say it was worth everything that you went through to serve Him and follow Him and live for Him. You'll wish on that day you had done more for His cause, not less. Stay faithful. Number four. Spurgeon said, we may question ourselves as to whether we think as much of our Lord as these disciples did. They thought so much of him that they knew he was going to rule and reign and they didn't want to miss out and they wanted to be a part of it. And so I ask you this morning, do you really believe that Jesus is going to rule? Do you really believe that he is going to reign? Do you really believe that his kingdom is going to come? Do you really desire that day? Do you really desire that kingdom? Or have you fallen asleep in this world? Oh, he's coming again. And he's going to rule and reign forever in righteousness and in perfect justice. And if this world has got you asleep, I say what the gospel writer of Luke says. Wake up. Wake up. He's coming. Number five. If you're an unbeliever, do you understand the centrality of the cross of Christ? That Jesus died as a sacrifice for you. That Jesus died as your substitute to satisfy God's wrath on your life so that you could be reconciled to him. Would you hear what the Bible says to you today, unbeliever? Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn in confession and repentance and belief to Christ. He is your ransom. And finally... I close with the words of J.C. Ryle. Let us not leave these verses without asking ourselves, where is our humility? What is our idea of true greatness? What is our example? What is our hope? Life, eternal life, depends on the answers we give to these questions. It shall not be so among you. Let's pray.